Okay, so the way, the truth, the life, um, our bigger series, but this is one about prayer, and this is part four. This one is, we're going to go through Psalm 86, uh, about uh, an application of prayer. Um, and uh, this may be a regular thing we'll do each week, um, each, sorry, each month rather, uh, we'll probably pick and go through uh, a whole section of scripture uh, so that we're always making sure we train ourselves in how to read the context of scripture and, and to uh, avoid doing too much picking of verses. So uh, we may do that as we go forward each month. So we're exploring Psalm 86. It's a prayer of David, it's called, um, and it's a prayer to to God, obviously, um, but not only about not only his situation, but mainly a reaffirmation of his love for a loving God. Uh, and so today we're going to bring together all the things we've learned over the last three weeks and identify them in this prayer today. And what I hope we can see today is in seeing David carry out this act of prayer, we too can take a good example of how to employ the approaches we've been talking about. Um, so why this psalm? Why this psalm of four other uh, prayer psalms? You know that if you read through psalms, David is probably praying in all of them to some degree, um, but there are specific ones where he is actually called a prayer. Um, and the reason why we're looking at this one in particular is because it's, it's the heaviest prayer out of all of them. So there's roughly five in all. Um, Charles Spurgeon, I, don't, I didn't put the quote up, but I'll read it to you. Uh, he, said there, he said a really good reason why this psalm is the most powerful in prayer compared to David's others. And he says, the man of sincerity, the man of, of ardor, of trials, of faults, and of great heart, pleads, sobs, and trusts through all the verses of this psalm. So the reason we're looking at this one in particular is because this is the psalm where he appears to pour himself into the, in, mostly into his prayer. And so this can also be seen by how uh, he uses uh, the word Lord. This is the most time he uses it out of any psalm. He uses it seven times when referring to God uh, of the whole psalm. Actually, the psalm is quite short, uh, considering that he uses it seven times. It means it's actually quite, quite common, quite often that he uses it. Um, and so what I'm going to do, we're going to go through each, uh, the week we've been before, or the three weeks we've done before, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through those points again, but a, a look at them in this prayer so we can perhaps see a bit more depth about you know, the, the different subjects we covered. And so the first one we look at is the reason David prays. What's the reason? Because we looked at that in the first week. Uh, he says this, let's take a look at the first four verses of the psalm, Psalm 86, verse 1 to 5. Uh, hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. I think when we look at this, <clears throat> the first part must should really strike us. Um, I think we're people who would struggle to admit our weaknesses, certainly to each other. Uh, and we can see this today in the, in the multitude of the mental health issues that we see around us in the world uh, and in society. 
And it's, it's years, of year, years and years of putting on a brave face or convincing ourselves that we're strong enough to handle our situation. Uh, but evidently it seems to make it worse. Um, and I, I'll only say that in my own personal point of view, that even if I, if I don't admit it to God, it builds up inside you. It gets quite stressful and it gets quite taxing. Uh, and then it starts to test your real comfort and peace in the Lord when you don't let the Lord have what is on your heart and what is on your mind uh, when we think that we're strong enough to handle it. And so without doing this, it, it does affect us in ways we probably didn't expect. Um, I can tell you, though, that as someone who's worked in the IT industry for what I was flabbergasted by was 23 years which I'm surprised about, you know, in, in, in this, in probably any industry, but it just flies by, the time just goes. But I can tell you that someone who's worked in, in different roles and different jobs in that industry, I can tell you that the worst thing you can do is to admit your weaknesses to a client. Uh, the worst thing you can do is to tell them what your weakness is. And I'm not talking about the company uh, before anyone sees this and goes, oh, you work for that company. That means that company must be rubbish. Uh, that's not it. I'm talking about personal weaknesses. You don't admit personal weaknesses when you're sitting in front of the client uh, and you're trying to help them. It's the last thing you should do. So the world tells us we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't admit weaknesses. Um, but in terms of admitting our weaknesses to God, it shows something very important to God about how we value our relationship with him. It shows that we trust him. If we admit any weakness to another person, we, we would probably all agree there has to be explicit trust in the weaknesses when we admit weaknesses. And I'm, I'm talking about really personal things in our lives, that there has to be this explicit trust between the two people in order that it wouldn't be used against us and instead looking for understanding and support. Uh, Proverbs uh, 11 verse 13 says, a gossip betrays confidence, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret who would have thought that the thing about keeping a secret is in the bible how weird right you wouldn't think no you've got to be open in the light not in the darkness uh, but there's a good purpose for this verse because it's saying don't betray the person that has put lots of trust in you and, and give me quite personal uh, things about themselves and uh, of course there are times when that must be shared in order to help somebody uh, of course, that, that must happen, but we don't slander, we don't use it against them, which is what this verse is effectively saying. We don't use it against that person uh, to betray them. But so it is with God, with God himself, but with one major difference. Uh, God is already fully trustworthy. Uh, between two people, we have to go through an exercise, don't we? Uh, where we have to test each other uh, if, we're tr if each of us are trustworthy enough. Do I trust you? Do you trust me? And then we sort of over months, maybe years, we, we get to know each other and we go, oh, okay, I can trust them and I can trust you and you can trust me. But here's the great thing with God and our personal relationship with him is that he's already trustworthy. He's already someone who is going to keep what is in your heart to himself. God doesn't need to show how trustworthy he is because he's already done so through Jesus. But even before Jesus, we see uh, in Isaiah, who foretold the coming of the Messiah, that uh, God is trustworthy. Isaiah 26, verse 4, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself is the rock eternal. We see again 1 Timothy 1, 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we, we, did, we were speaking about the worst sinner uh, when we were talking about, uh, who was it? We were, um, my brain's completely gone. Uh, who was admitting it was, it was, no, it wasn't Paul. You said Paul, didn't you? It wasn't Paul. It was a tax collector. That's the one I'm thinking of. This, this verse here is perfect for that situation. Um, the, the tax collector considered himself uh, just like Paul here saying he is the worst. So did the tax collector thought himself rightly the worst. But David's here. David in our, in our Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 86, David's very reason to praise because he trusts in the one who, is, who he's talking to. He trusts the one who is sharing uh, very private, very personal uh, emotions and feelings about, about his situation, about himself. He puts his life in God's hands, asking him to protect his life as a faithful servant. And David knew, the reason why David did this is because he knew that God is full of love. He's full of compassion. And especially for those that admit that they're poor in spirit and in need of him. Matthew 5 verse 3 says he said blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven so david when he approaches god he knew that in approaching him with honesty with humility and trust would mean he would be heard by a loving compassionate god david based his plea on the graciousness of god knowing that he is good and ready to forgive uh, here's a quote from from mayor meyer uh, he says this, we are blinded by sin and cannot believe that God is ready to forgive. We think that we must induce him to forgive by tears, promises of amendment, religious observances. Oh, clasp this word to your heart, say it over and over again, ready to forgive, ready to forgive. How much have I been saying over this month? You don't need to perform in front of God for God to do what he's already going to do, which is to forgive you. There's nothing we can do that would make us look any better in front of him. And so it is with this quote here. Absolutely right. It won't make God any more or less forgiving by being more, let me say, dramatic. But I did say, on the other hand, that in seeking forgiveness, it might, it might, it might, it might get to your emotions and your emotions might spill out because of it. And that's fine too that's okay but our performance doesn't impress him our performance doesn't make him any more or less forgiving and so i think that would nicely bring us on to the effectiveness of david's prayer what is what is what do we see how effective is this prayer what is going to happen when he prays this prayer and what is the result of him saying the words he says to god what what's what's going to happen so he says here Verse six and seven, hear my prayer, Lord, listen to my cry for mercy. When I'm in distress, I call to you because you answer me. What's been established is that David has submitted his life to God. He trusts God with his whole life. And on that basis, he trusted in God's promises to deliver his servant from persecution whether that was in the present time or in eternal life, maybe David might get killed at this point. But that's okay too, because David trusts God entirely with his life. So if his life is wrapped up with God, 
He's going to him whether it's in this moment or in another moment. So David starts by a petition, but then he proceeds with confidence in the petition he's made. And it's not that David is hoping that God will answer him. David is 100% sure that God will answer him. He says, I call to you because you answer me. Not in the hope you answer me, not please answer me, because you answer me. Mark eleven twenty four says, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have perceived it and it will be yours. And so it continues in Psalm 86, 8 to 13. Among the gods, there is none like you. Lord, no deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you've made will come and worship before you. Lord, they will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvellous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may, I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. David knows that this prayer to the one true God will have an effective outcome. And what he's doing here is comparing this outcome with the outcome of the pagan gods. The ones, what would they do? Here's the difference David is striking. What he's saying here is this, that you, God, are compassionate and full of love. You will forgive me because you have great love towards me. And here's what he's saying about the little gods, the ones that are not really gods, but pretend to be. They desire your sacrifice, your worship, your, your, you, you need to give everything to them to, for them to even consider giving you some kind of gift, some kind of respite, some kind of whatever. But he says, if I just submit to God, in comparison, God will do it because he loves me. Whereas these other gods, they want love. They, 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 they chase after it and they want your attention. They want your, the, your obsession over them. They bow. It's one of these gods. And he desires this weird and wonderful worship. But what comes back in return? Nothing. Whereas he prays to his God, which is amazing, and says, Lord, I know that you will respond to me because you love me. Not because of anything I've done, but because you are amazing. David knew his God responded to prayer and made it effective by enabling it. A uh, quote here from Paul says, uh, not, not Paul as in, sorry, P-O-O-L-E. Uh, I am not now calling upon a deaf, a deaf and impotent idol, for then I might cry my heart out and all in vain, but upon the Almighty and most gracious God. The cries to false gods is pointless. It'd be endless crying, as the quote says here, because nothing will come back. Nothing will come and love you. Nothing will give you rest. Yet he says, because God so loves us that he sent his son to die on the cross, so he will respond to prayer. David makes the point that his God has 
done and will do marvelous deeds, that he, the God of the Bible, is the one true and only God. 10 to 12 says, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. The outcome of this prayer You know when you write something, you think, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Anyway. What's the outcome of this prayer? That's probably the best way to put it. Its effectiveness is in part to be rescued from his foes. Of course, that's what he wants. He wants to be rescued from his enemies. We see that in, in the Psalms all the time. But what does he want the prayer to do first? He says, teach me your way that I may rely on your faithfulness. A fear of your name, so that he may worship and glorify and concentrate all his heart on praising the one he calls to. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. The number one purpose of prayer for the believer is that the effectiveness of prayer brings, brings peace to the one making the call to God. We're always seeking answers, and we want God to answer us, and he will answer us. But the first step must be an acceptance that the prayer itself will give us peace. That I'm, I'm, I'm at peace with handing up my concerns, my issues, the things I'm struggling with. And if I can hand that up to God, what he gives me back is peace. Peace that we know that he's going to deal with it. In some form or another, he is going to respond to us and deal with it. But before David prays about the practical or specific request he is making to God, he submits his own heart and flesh for redemption. David wants his own heart examined and redeemed by a holy God. Because in what is going on around him, in all the chaos and fear of it, he wants his whole being to know that God is his comfort. Not even the people that are attacking him, the comfort is not even found in them relenting. His comfort is found in the God he's praying to. David starts with a plea in verse 1 for help. He says, I'm needy. I'm poor. And then through the process of prayer, recognizes the need to learn from what he is facing. Sometimes it's good to talk through with God in your prayer. David, this is what David does in the Psalms. So he's, he's very carefully not being the one who's kind of just saying loads of stuff and being this person who looks impressive. But what he's doing is as he's praying, he's also using his brain, which you're allowed to do, by the way. He's using his brain and he's thinking, I know who God is. And the reason why he knows who God is, is because he's read scripture. And as he speaks through his prayer, stepping through it, he starts with poor and needy. And he slowly comes to this place where he says, but you are my Lord forever. You are compassionate, loving and forgiving. And he's working through ever so carefully his own heart with God. A voice 
says this, says most of us when we pray are concerned about deliverance and help and guidance and such things. But we are not nearly as concerned to be taught God's way and to be helped to serve him with an undivided heart. When he says uh, undivided, what he's saying is, I want my heart to be on one focus, on one thing. I want it to be on God. So if you can imagine yourself for a second, David on the run, maybe just imagine being David if that's even possible. And what you imagine is that everyone around you is out for you. They're out to get you, out to kill you. How many things are you thinking of in that one moment when you think every other second someone could discover you? Someone could find you and someone could kill you. David is asking, push all that stuff away. I don't want the distraction of the little gods. I don't want the distraction of what my life might end up being, which is I might die. But I want an undivided heart, all focused on the Lord. He's finding peace in this moment. With enemies surround him, he's finding peace. He knew that what he was asking for could not be done on his own effort. That if he thought it was about how he could evade his enemies, it would in fact take him further away from the Lord's peace and comfort. And so he asked God to unite his heart to this one purpose, not to have, a go, have it go here and there and everywhere else in anxiousness, looking to different gods or man-made solutions. Instead, Calm his anxiety, calm his anxious heart, his anxious mind. Psalm 37, verses 7 to 8. Uh, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. This is, this is interesting because it, it links quite nicely with where David is. Now, could David think of a way out? He could. He could even try and kill his enemy. He could take the initiative. He could surprise them. He could take them out himself. But God says, don't do that because you're going to be like them. You're, you're going to do the things that they're doing to you. And all that will do is it will lead to evil you will then only perpetrate evil from that point on. So then why should he wait? It says, why should he wait and be still before the Lord, be patient for him? Because this is what he must know. Psalm 86, 13, for great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. God will bring about the effectiveness of the prayer because his God has a great love for him. And not just any love. It's a covenant love. It's a promised love. One that never fails. Uh, in this book I told you about, there's this great section early on in the book where it talks about love. What does, what does love mean for Christians? Loving others. It's something we talk about a lot. Uh, and it becomes almost 
a mantra, not necessarily a thing we do. Uh, but he, he says the church can't be without that component. It must have love in its heart for the lost. It must have love in its heart for the people in its community. But he says it's not the love you think it is. This is a spiritual love. This is not the love that we care for when we see someone struggling, he says, or when we see a single mum who is struggling with her life, when she's struggling to pay the bills. That's compassion and it's love, but it's not the same love. He says, it's this great love, spiritual love, that ultimately, yes, it's great and we want those people helped in their practical situation, but he says that work alone means nothing if they don't know Jesus. If they don't know our love for Jesus and we want them to have that love too, it's all kind of pointless, isn't it? It's all kind of pointless helping them in their current situation, knowing that all we're really doing if we're not loving them spiritually is we're just kind of giving them a nice on the way until they get to hell. It kind of doesn't work, does it? It's nice that we do all these things for people. It's nice that we try and get involved in various different things to help people to be fed and their families to be fed. But what are we losing when we focus so much on that? That all we're doing, as Jesus did, but was trying to teach them, was just feeding their bellies. Jesus said to him, it's not enough. You have your belly full every day, but that still won't be enough. Who said it? Someone said, we're sending them to hell on full bellies. I remember this quote from some time ago. And so it is here that when he speaks of this great love towards him, it's not this because David is struggling against his enemies kind of love that God goes, oh no, look, he's, he's surrounded on all sides. God has an even greater love than that. A greater love towards his servant. And so in David's prayer, he thinks about God's past deliverance in his life. This is why he's had confidence, because not only does he read scripture, which is the first thing he obviously needed to do to know this God that he loves, but he experienced being rescued by this God that he's read about and he loves. God's done it before, surely he'd do it again. He read about the merciful God who rescued him. He experienced the merciful God who rescued him before time and time again. This is the same God who is listening, who is holy, who is worthy of trust, who is merciful, who is good and ready to forgive. It goes on, 14 to 15. Arrogant foes are attacking me. Oh God, ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. It's better when you read these famous verses, as it were, in context, right? We read this one, uh, we take verse 15 out, because it's a great one, isn't it? You, Lord, are a compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Read the context. What is the context that David is saying this in? He says it in the context of his life being threatened in that very moment. 
he still says you are gracious and compassionate and loving. So his prayer is effective in as much as it is to remind him that no matter the evilness, the ruthlessness of those attacking him, nothing men could do could override the goodness of God. He says, it doesn't matter what these men do to me. It doesn't matter that I die today because the Lord will always be the same. Because the Lord has to stay the same for me to trust in this God. And this God promises to stay the same because he said that as well. And so if I trust in the only God that promises to stay exactly who he is all the time, it means I'm going to end up with him. Because that's what he said would happen if I trust and love him. That he would love me so much that he would save me. It's an example of the prayer working actively in his heart to bring him comfort and peace of who he knows God to be. Comfort and peace and calm in the rough sea that he is in at the moment. He continues, uh, 16, 17, uh, turn to me, have mercy on me, show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. What David wanted his prayer for God is, is to have mercy upon him. He wanted God to have mercy on him. David asked for this mercy, not on what he deserved, even though you might read this and go, he's saying, I basically deserve your salvation, your rescue, because I'm your servant, because of a, a good servant I am. But he's not doing it on that basis. He's not using those words in order to go, oh, look how good I am, that's why you should save me. He's just trusting what God promised. We know that when we get to heaven, when we see Jesus, the one thing we want him to say it's well done, my good and faithful servant, right? So that means God commanded us to be good and faithful servants. And that means if we're good and faithful servants, that means he fulfills the promise of us being saved. So that's what David is doing. David is just saying, I am the servant of which you asked me to be. At least in the best way he can. So it's on what God promised, that God will have mercy on him, a sinner who's under, undeserving. It's not because of who he is, but because of who God says God is, loving and compassionate. And as I say, you might then say, or ask if David is trying to prove his worth by saying how much of a good servant he is based on being the son of another good servant, his mother. Again, this can be taken out of context, right? Because we talk about, we see in today, that faith is kind of inherited, that people think, well, my family are saved and therefore I'm just saved because my family went through it. My family go to church, therefore I'm also saved. But he's not doing that. Both earlier in the verses and now, this reference to his salvation being linked to be a faithful servant is actually about David simply expressing how completely he belongs to God. He's not saying he deserves it because he's a servant. He's expressing, I'm a servant and 
I'm giving over everything to you. My life is in my Lord. It's effectively what he says in probably nearly every psalm that we read that David has written. And even as he expresses how faithful he has been, he balances this with still laying himself on God's mercy. So this is quite intricate, and many people say this. This is a well-thought-out prayer. This is not aimless. This is not he just waits for the words to come. He, he carefully thinks through the words he's going to say. And so when he's saying, I'm your servant, save me, he's already packed that with, but I lay myself on your mercy because you're merciful. He doesn't think that any of his work is worthy of being saved, but if he lays himself on God, on God's mercy, God says, I'll save you. His servitude is a result of being a servant to an already merciful God. He serves because God is merciful and loving, not because his ability to serve made him any better or good in the sight of God alone. So then, what does this mean for his attitude? What's his attitude in the prayer? So as we've gone through all of this, all the psalm of Psalm 86, we can learn ultimately of David's attitude. We can see in the text David's attitude. In all of David's requests and petitions, what David did not do was to demand God to prove himself. I said this often, but how many times have you heard someone say, if God just does this, I will believe in him. Even when we watched, um, watched the uh, TV series, uh, a guy went around asking, what would it take for you to believe in Jesus? I said, if he appeared in front of me. And they're wrong. Because they still won't believe in him. Because Jesus said so. There was no amount of signs, of wonders, of miracles that Jesus could do to convince the hard-hearted, the ones who absolutely rebel purposefully against God, even if Jesus stood in front of them and performed a miracle, do you know what those people would have said? This is all a trick. You're not really Jesus, you're just performing tricks. There's an excuse that, that they know the reason why people say, many people actually, it appeared that the reason why they, uh, the reason they would give if they were to believe in Jesus was if he stood in front of them. Turns out most people won't actually believe in Jesus at all. Because what they know is that that actually won't happen. So the excuse they use is, if he stood in front of me today and spoke to me face to face, I'd believe in him. I mean, it's a great excuse to pick because that's not going to happen. More worrying from our point of view is that what they don't realize, even if you tell them, is that the only time you're going to see Jesus face to face is when you're flat down on your knees begging for mercy when he comes to judge the world. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord. David says it here in his prayer, doesn't he? Everybody will recognize the Lord. Everybody will see the Lord. So he didn't demand God to prove himself. 
we find that as we've gone through this psalm, David came with the attitude that he knew, he knew already that God loves him. Again, not because David is special, not because he's impressive, but because God is forgiving. God is good. God is abounding in love to all who call to him. And then you might think, at least some might think, is David blackmailing God? Is he blackmailing God into saving him because of who he says God is? He says, if you are this loving, gracious God, then you'll save me, right? But that's clearly not what's happening. This prayer and many others like it are actually carefully thought through by the one doing the praying. You remember we talked about Moses. We talked about when he went up to the mountain, when he went to see God, and God said, uh, they're, they're building, they're creating a golden calf, an idol to worship uh, instead of me. I'm going to wipe these people out. And he says, don't do that, because Egypt will say that you just brought them out to kill them. I'm shortening, obviously paraphrasing. Uh, Moses was much more elegant with his words. But he says, don't do that, because you're kind of proven right. Now, what I said was, God did not change his mind because Moses made a good account of not, why not to do it. God already knew that when Moses went down, he's going to see this terrible state of affairs. And what we learned was that Moses responded exactly how God was going to respond to some degree or another. So it's not mindless, it's not blackmailing, it's not, it's not trying to leverage emotions, it's not, he's just, he's trusting in the promise that God said would happen. He's trusting that as a servant of God, he will be saved. So this prayer is not mindless, it's a prayer that carefully navigates the pitfalls that lie between us and God, our selfishness, our pride, our arrogance, to name a few. But David is only repeating back to God who he knows him to be through the scriptures. While acknowledging that God will do exactly what God said he will do and be exactly who God says God is. And David needs God to be the God that he has read about. For that is the only God that can save him. And so he acknowledges that compared to other so-called deities, this God is the only God who's already shown David that he's blessed him and will continue to do so. David's attitude in prayer is one of trust, one of expectation that God's will be done. So much so that even when he asks for a sign, it's not for him. Do you notice that in the text? When he asks for a sign, he doesn't ask it for himself. He asks it for his enemies. So that the others might see the power of the almighty God. David asked God, and this is what some people might think David meant by it, that God marked him. So that when he did go out in front of them or when he got discovered, they would see the mark of God on him. 
and so they may see the Lord upon him and be put to shame by the revelation of a holy God that actually does exist. And then, of course, the conviction would come. So we know the process, right? When we have God revealed to us through the Holy Spirit, then the process starts. A revelation of a holy God actually existing. He convicts us by our actions, our thoughts, our sinfulness. And then he saves us. He wants them to see their evil actions against him. But actually, turns out, God and his grace, it's not only against David. Their actions are against the holy God. Because God's mark is on David. What he's hoping for is they've recognized the grace of God. That actually, God could have wiped him out already. God could have wiped him off the face of the planet in one click. But in his grace, he doesn't. Matthew 5, verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. David's continual attitude is one of a man who is in need, who is needy and in poor spirit. Needy in the right way, by the way. One who trusts in what God has done before and fully capable of delivering in the future. For us, God has been gracious in sending his one and only son. We now stand because of Jesus. We now are here because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Jesus who died for all sin, who has risen so we can not only have a new life now, but trust on the promises to come when Jesus returns. So as we bring our series to an end, we end on this, I think, probably a set of verses which I've mentioned earlier, which I think is absolutely the foundation of prayer. Don't look to the solution, look to the prayer. Philippians 4, verse 6 to 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer, petition, thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll close ourselves uh, off the worship.